this week, we have a treat for you. We've invited a special guest who's uniquely qualified to help us understand the state of U.S. politics, what to expect in 2020, and how we'll get there. Hello and welcome to The Pundets Tackle Politics. I'm Sherry Bebich Jeffy. And I'm Pilar Marrero. We are the Pundets. And, and we, we tackle, tackle politics. politics. Please stay tuned for a special interview with political analyst and author Bill Schneider. The Pundets are stoked to welcome our first Pundets Honorary Pundit and the author of the timely book, Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. That is Bill Schneider. Sometimes known as the Sherry Jeffy of the East Coast, <laughs> Bill is a premier political analyst. He's covered American politics since 1964, serving as CNN senior political analyst from 1990 to 2009. And he's covered every presidential and midterm election since 1976. And what is really cool is he's lived to tell about it. <laughs> Bill is currently a professor at the Shar School of Public Policy and Government at George Mason University and is a contributor to Al Jazeera English. Welcome, Bill, and Thank thanks so much for joining us. Welcome. My pleasure. Now, let's go and start with the obvious question. Can you give us a quick overview of how America became ungovernable? Well, start with this. We were designed to be ungovernable. The Constitution was written by the Founding Fathers who wanted limited government. They wanted as weak a government as possible. How can you prove that? Very simple. The first Constitution they wrote was the Articles of Confederation. It was so weak and ineffectual, it had to be thrown out the window after about seven years because it, each colony in the United States could have tariffs on other colonies. So if tobacco was sent from Virginia to Maryland, they had to pay a tariff. It was like all separate countries. The first was, Brexit, huh? Yep, that's right. <laughs> they threw it out the window and they wrote another constitution, but they still provided for limited government. How? Checks and balances, divisions of power, federalism between the national government and the states. Everything was limited. It's very, it was designed so it would be very hard to get things done. And that's exactly why we're in the mess we're in. Why did it take so long to get there? I mean, I remember in the 70s when Tom Frank wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, and talked a lot about why Kansans were economically more able to relate to Democrats' agenda, but they had certain values which were closer to the Republicans, and they voted that way. We had some clues early on that something like this has got to come at some point or another. Why did it take so long? Well, because what happened in the 1960s, which is where everything began uh -huh. and all our problems started, as you said, Tom Frank put, po pointed his finger at it. In the 1960s, we started to have a division of values that shaped our politics. Historically, for most of our country's history, politics has been about conflicts of interest. Conflicts of interest can be negotiated. They can be compromised. You can make a deal. That's mm -hmm. what politics is supposed to be about. 
Bill Clinton was once confronted by a Tea Party supporter who complained that she didn't like compromise and deal making. And he said, Madam, read the Constitution. It might as well be called Let's Make a Deal. <laughs> but it's hard to make one. a deal where you have divisions of values. That's what happened in the 60s. You started to have divisions of values, which were about matters of right and wrong. And when you have that, you can't make any deals anymore. Is that because we don't have leaders who can lead us to deals? No, they can try to lead us to deals. But the fact is, most people, that th you have constituencies that will not support them. And those constituencies oh. have control of both of our major parties. So deal making is very, very difficult these days. That means if you want to be a great senator first, you have to be elected. <laughs> well, yeah, and today, you know, seats are becoming safer and safer, which means that if you're a Republican in a safe Republican district, the only threat you face is a threat from more right-wing Republicans in case you don't hew to the party line. And now the same thing is happening with Democrats. Safe seats like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, she comes from a safe seat. It voted 80 percent for Hillary Clinton. The only threat she could ever face would be to someone, if there is such a thing, to her left. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is such a thing, but not in this country. <laughs> Pilar hasn't decided to run yet. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not that. I'm not that person for sure. Um, so a lot of people blame the internet and social media for the state of politics and divisions and all that. What do you, where do you stand on that? I think the internet and social media have made things worse because what it means is that people who have a particular point of view can suddenly form a community with other people with the same point of view right. and support the same candidates and give money to them over the internet. It's a whole new way of raising money. It was first invented really by John McCain, who got a lot of money over the internet, and then Bernie Sanders, and now all politicians are trying to do that. To raise money over the internet, you have to stir passion. That's mm -hmm. the only way it works. You have to have passionate, devoted, devoted supporters like Bernie Sanders. And if you're mm -hmm. not passionate, and which means generally divisive, it's going to be difficult to raise that kind of money. But you can also use the Internet to uh, spread fake news and, and bad information like, you know. And the, opposition research. And all of that. And, um, and so, therefore, um, that's an additional negative uh, going on, right? Yeah. Well, the fake news is part of this system we now have in which the parties are controlled by true believers. And true okay. believers don't uh, assess information the same way other people do. They want information that backs up their point of view. They use news and information as weapons. And what we are seeing in this country today is the weaponization of all news and all information. But are Americans becoming more extreme in their politics? Because, uh, or, or is it just the loud voices that are extreme? Well, that's one of your best observations. Let me throw it at you. Yeah. Um, you observed in the book, public opinion matters. Loud opinions matter more. That's right. Uh, people who are who who vote an issue like uh, the gun activists, they matter because the issue determines how they vote. And politicians know that if they don't right, vote the right way on guns, there's going to be a posse of gun owners who are going to come after them. Yeah. They're not a majority of the voters. They're only a minority. But the fact is they vote the issue. Yes. And the other side doesn't. People who support gun control, they may vote the issue shortly after a terrifying massacre, but they don't sustain that anger very long. Gun activists are always going to vote their guns. Bill, I thought that was, it might be, that might be a little bit 
simplistic. It's it, I. It's really only the loudness of the opinion, isn't it? As much as, if not more, where and for whom and from whom opinions come that matter, no matter how loud those opinions are. Well, loud opinions get communicated. And it's, it's, uh, it's not it's not only important to have a, an opinion, but also to communicate with elected officials that if they don't ag- agree with your position, you're going to come after them, and you don't care what else they say. The left doesn't usually behave that way. It's usually the right, people who are anti-abortion, people who are pro-gun. But that does happen on the left as well. And I can remember it very keenly during the Vietnam War when people on the left said, if you aren't right on this war, that is anti-war, we don't care what else you say. Mm-hmm. We don't care what else you stand for. We're going to come after you. J. William Fulbright faced that problem when he because he was a supporter of the war, but he was good on civil rights. And they said, so what? All we care about is the war. And those kinds of opinions are the ones that matter. So can, should we go into the... Socialism word and what it means. The S word. The S word, because uh, you Ready know, the, when you are back, back in the, in the uh, State of the Union speech, the president brought up the issue and he essentially compared. He talked about socialism and, and how he is, you know, the one that can protect the United States against it. And then he referred to Venezuela, my country of birth, and, so and we'll talk a little bit about that another time. But uh, and then he compared. Venezuela to the Democrats, which I thought was hilarious. But so is, <laughs> so this is going to be, a, I can tell, kind of a red baiting campaign around this word. President is Trump wants to make this a referendum on socialism, associating the Democrats with what he calls radical socialism. Every member of Congress these days, when they give a speech, they always refer to Democrats as the Socialist Party. They want to make the election a referendum on socialism. The election is supposed to be a referendum on President Trump. Correct. If he, uh, He's running for re-election. We know that. <laughs> and it's supposed to be about whether he deserves to be re-elected or not. Well, so far, he is ne- his approval rating has never even hit 50%. So he wants to change the subject. Let's not talk about me for once, yes. the first time he's ever done that. Let's talk <laughs> about socialism. Yeah. Bill, before we go any further, what's the definition of socialism? Government ownership of property, government ownership of the means of production. That's what it's supposed to mean. That is that is the traditionally original. Right. But, but to a lot of Americans today, particularly Democrats and young people, socialism means something else. They think it means equality because that's often associated with socialism. What they're conscious of is that the economy has been doing very well, but most of the benefit has been going to wealthy people. Uh, younger people, poorer people, middle class people—they don't see it. They don't. They feel as if somehow other people are taking the the great economy f- for themselves. Uh, and so, what do they want? They want a stronger social safety net. Right. Mm-hmm. Things like Medicare services. for everybody. Yeah, services. A government provision of, of, of services for everyone. Mm-hmm. That's what they think socialism is all about. And to some extent, of course, it is. But, of course, you have to specify you want democratic socialism. But I, I, I'm always struck by how little most Americans know about socialism. I mean, they used to talk about Barack Obama as a socialist, which well, he's in not. in some sense he was, wasn't he? A socialist? He was, was he? He was very liberal. He was very liberal. He was very liberal on some things, not on other things, like immigration, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so- socialism used to be associated with communism. Remember, Russia yes. was—the the, the Soviet Union 
was the USSR, the right. Union of Soviet Socialist yes. Republics. Yes. It was officially a socialist economy. Uh, it, but, of course, with the end of the Cold War, which is now way back in 1991, a long time ago, young people don't think about that. They don't think about no. socialism as a threat to our national security. I'll tell you. Americans, uh, people, immigrants who have come to this country and who have lived in a socialist country like Venezuela. I was just going to go there. Cuba, <laughs> China in the 50s when they came over after the communist revolution. Cubans, they are all right wing in the first generation because they don't want to hear anything about socialism. They don't want to hear anything about the Democratic Party. They don't want to see any red flags. The first Korean American in Congress was a Republican. Yeah. The first Vietnamese American in Congress was a Republican. And the Soviet, the, the refugees from Russia today, even though they're Jewish, they're voting Republican because they associate socialism with a very bad experience. And you're right. Uh, I will add that a lot of Venezuelans are not right wing. Many Venezuelans are not for Trump, for example. But at the same time, they if they're younger... They do have a bad idea or a bad experience with socialism, especially if they grew up in Venezuela. And if you tell them anything about socialism, they're a little, you know, they're they're, they're very reluctant mm -hmm. to embrace that. I've had conversations with my younger brothers and and nephews who've lived there and try to explain to them what democratic socialism is. And they are very skeptical in my explanations. Let's have the definition of democratic socialism before you land. Well, socialism means means government ownership of the means of production. Mm -hmm. That's that's the the textbook definition. Uh, Usually it means a, a prominent government role in the economy uh, and government direction of the economy to some extent. Democratic socialism imp implies that a government can be removed by democratic means. The test of democracy is that can, the people have to be able to vote a government out of power. Well, it didn't work very well in Venezuela when the election was rigged, yes. and it never worked in Cuba or in Russia or in any other communist country. You couldn't vote the government out. Those were socialist countries, but they weren't democracies. So I guess the question for me is, will that strategy of calling socialism, calling Democrats socialism work for Donald Trump? Well, it certainly will rally Republicans. They, they recoil in horror at the word socialism. Mm -hmm. Republicans tend to be older. They remember the Cold War. They remember the Soviet threat. Uh, and they're not ready to embrace anything that, that looks, sounds like socialism. If the mm. Democrats are smart, they might, they'll take positions on issues that are genuinely popular, like Medicare for all. Even taxing the rich is a popular position. Most Americans consider themselves middle class. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. Middle and class the people. The, the definition of middle class is very simple. Neither rich nor poor. So therefore, <laughs> that's everybody. Right? Yes, it's ninety percent of Americans yeah. don't consider themselves poor. rich or poor. So when Democrats talk about taxing the rich, they say, "Fine, that's not me." When uh, when they talk about programs that help the poor, they get in trouble. Why? That's not me either. Mm -hmm. I'm not rich. I'm not poor. That's the definition of the middle class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the article that you just posted on the NBC News blog, uh, Fig. You asked that question, uh, observing that Trump is turning 2020 into a referendum on AOC, Cortez, and socialism. That's good for Democrats. Explain a little bit more where you're going with that. Because uh, the Democrats aren't going to talk about, if they're smart, they're not going to talk about socialism, but they are going to talk about measures to, in, to solidify the social safety net, to improve 
uh, health care for everyone, which is a very big concern right now. They'll talk about a lot of government social safety net programs, but they'll never, if they're smart, use the S word. They don't want to talk about socialism. How do you talk about it then? By talking about issues, policies, programs that socialists may like and may admire, but you don't say this is our socialist agenda because that'll scare people off. No, that, they will never do that. I don't think Democrats will do that. So um, you've been covering presidential elections for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I want your prediction or yeah. at least, you know, your analysis. Can Trump win re-election? Can he? Yes, I think he can. Americans really? are normally inclined to reelect a president, except when they don't. They didn't reelect the, the first President Bush. They didn't reelect Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to make sure Trump doesn't get reelected, it's something Democrats can't talk about. But here's what would really do him in. A recession. Right. Mm -hmm. We've had 11 recessions since 1950. Ten of them started under Republican presidents. Now, that's mostly because we've had mostly Republican presidents. Right. <laughs> But the fact is, uh, the only one that started under a Democrat was Jimmy Carter in 1980. Uh, if the economy is booming, the Republicans are insisting they're going to run on the economy. Trump did not use the economy in 2018, in the midterm election. That angered a lot of Republicans because they said, we have this great economy and all he wanted to talk about was caravans and immigration. Mm -hmm. Trump gives every indication that he wants to do that again in 2020. Mm -hmm. He wants to make the wall his issue. If it's a referendum on the wall, yeah. no, he cannot get reelected. Trump is an unusual president. He is a deliberately divisive president. He exploits division. Mm -hmm. I said that once at a forum, and a Republican, a conservative, got angry and said, Obama was the more divisive president. Bill Clinton was divisive. What are you talking about? Trump is divisive. They don't have the same definition no. of divisive. No, the term I used was deliberately divisive. Trump governs by deliberately dividing the country. Obama may have divided the country over his policies, but he didn't set out to divide the country. Yeah. That is what Trump is doing, and it's shameful. But is it going to work? Can it work? Americans resent that. And frankly, what they're going to be looking for, I think, in 2020 uh, is someone who can reconcile the country, someone who at least has a measure of something they don't see in President Trump, civility. Trump has no... No uh, aspect of civility. Doesn't know the meaning of the word. He doesn't know the meaning of the word. He doesn't govern that way. He governs. He only campaigns to his base. Those are the only people he cares about. So if Democrats can nominate someone who is at least reasonably civil, but there is a risk here. Before Trump, we had four presidents in a row who promised to bring the country together, and they all failed. The first President Bush was kinder and gentler. He got fired. Bill Clinton was a new Democrat in the third way. He got impeached. The second President Bush said, I'm a uniter, not a divider, and he divided the country worse than ever. And Obama said there's no liberal America and no conservative America. There's only the United States of America. He was wrong. He was yeah, totally wrong. He was totally wrong. wrong. So if he was totally wrong, does that mean that this country cannot be united? It's going to be difficult because the divisions are there and they're very extreme. What we want is a president who's not going to exploit those divisions, which is what Trump does. Trump saw the division and he said, this gives me an opening. This gives me an opportunity to put my foot in the door and get elected. And he got elected more or less on a fluke because his opponent, Hillary Clinton, had some bad missteps. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of, of quick questions. Um, we really haven't talked about politics on the world stage, and I'd sort of like to just throw a couple. There appear to be standoffs, as you discussed them, impacting politics and government almost everywhere. And there are some 
very worrisome examples of the politics of us versus them, which which you talk very clearly and thoughtfully about in your book. So let me quickly get your analysis of what's going on and why. Um, and I think maybe for the first one I'm going to throw at you, Pilar may have something to say too. What's going on in Venezuela? I think Pilar will, <laughs> will know more than I do. It's a standoff. It definitely is a standoff. But yeah, that's that's a question for like a whole show, Sherry. Oh, good. Let's put it on the agenda. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my favorite topic, Brexit. How did Britain get there? Well, look, uh, most countries in Europe and the United States, for different reasons, are facing a refugee problem. Uh, It's not a crisis in the United States. The president is trying to turn it into a crisis. But for most Americans, including those on the border, uh, the refugee problem is not a crisis. It's it's just a problem that needs somehow to be solved. In Europe, they've been overrun by refugees from Africa, from the Middle East, not from Latin America, but from those parts of the world. Some of these refugees are dangerous. Whenever a country is faced with an influx of refugees or immigrants, there's bound to be a backlash. That is what helped produce Brexit in Britain. They had to live among people from Eastern Europe, taking jobs that they thought should go to British people. They had to live with Muslims, who were, of course, part of the British Empire. Uh, In the United States, we had a flood of refugees. Every time we've had immigrants and refugees in this country, we have a backlash. The Irish came in the 1850s when they faced famine. Mm -hmm. The result was the Know Nothing Party which was anti-Catholic and anti-Irish. The early 20th century, before World War I, we had an influx of refugees and immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. Bang! In the 1920s, the second Ku Klux Klan. Well, now we're having the same kind of reaction to the flow of refugees from Asia and from Latin America that started when they reformed the immigration law uh, under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Makes sense to me. And quickly, one of your favorite research topics is real. What's going on with Netanyahu and Israel? And isn't that also us versus them? Isn't that also a standoff? Well, Israel, Netanyahu, I think, is going to have trouble getting reelected, principally because he's facing imminent indictment for for what looks like criminal activity. He and his wife could be indicted. And he's been in, this would be his fourth consecutive term, his fifth term as prime minister. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to be tough for him to get reelected, though he's trying to engineer it because, look, an election in Israel is never conclusive. Once the parties get in power, then they have to make deals to see if someone can build a majority. I think it's going to be tough. He might be able to do it, but it's going to be tough. In the United States, Israel has changed in an important way. Israel is an issue of division in a way that it's never been in the past. Uh, And that's partly because of Netanyahu. He's made it clear that Republicans are better for Israel than Democrats. But yet some 80 percent of Democrats, of uh, Jews in the United States vote Democratic. What Jews are an unusual constituency. When Tom Frank wrote about Kansas, he said they don't vote their interests, they vote their values. Their interests are liberal on economics, but they vote their religious conservative values. Jews are exactly the opposite. Jews have conservative interests economically and with Israel, but they have liberal values. And what do they do? They vote their values. So the Israel issue has become really more partisan. Everything has become more partisan, but now Israel is becoming more partisan. 
let's let's wrap up. Yes. Would you like um, to wrap this up? This is such a, a wonderful lesson that we're getting from Bill. It's it's really amazing. But uh, I want to give you the last question, and um, and it is this: Do you see democracy in the United States to be broken and irreparable? I do think it's broken. I don't think it's irreparable. I believe in our constitutional system and our order. Uh, um, let me tell you the little secret, dirty little secret of American politics. It was designed not to work, and th so we end up with gridlock. Mm -hmm. How do we break gridlock? The answer is the same as it's been for over 200 years. If a crisis emerges and the country sees it as a crisis, everything suddenly works. The Depression was a crisis. Suddenly the system works. We had a lot of radicals in the 30s, communists and socialists and all kinds of things. But the system eventually worked. Give us a crisis and the United States will get through it every time because it mobilizes the public. It rallies the political system. It can be an economic crisis, the financial crisis of 2008. Right. It can be a 9-11 crisis. Whenever something like that faces Americans, they pull together and the system suddenly works. Bill, thank you. Thank That's you so much. a brilliant summary. <laughs> Your god dog. <laughs> Kennedy Bebbage Jeffy is proud of you. <laughs> and He's proud also of Mike. his godmother, uh, Pilar Moreno. There you go. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank My you. pleasure. Welcome back to the Pundets, and we're going to go right into this week's earthquakes. So I want to talk about the big news of the last few days about the college admissions scandal, or what some people are calling affirmative action for rich white folks. <laughs> so the FBI on Tuesday charged dozens of wealthy parents, including celebrities Laurie Laughlin and Felicity Huffman, in a major cheating and bribery scheme to get their children admitted into some of the nation's most elite colleges. The administrators were bribed, according to the indictment, to designate their children as recruited athletes, regardless of their athletic abilities, or to put them on other favored admission lists. This involved bribing coaches and college administrators to the tune of $25 million over seven years and paying off college entrance exam administrators to allow students to cheat on their tests. Coaches at Georgetown, USC, UCLA, the University of Texas, and other schools face charges as well. Both the University of Southern California and the University of California, Los Angeles, are on the list. Oh, yes. Here Equal opportunity. So, you know, the reaction, of course, was um, uh, great, in particular, from, <laughs> you know, Latinos and other minorities who felt that you know, there's there's always this attack on affirmative action, to, which is, you know, the, the program that was uh, created to try to help some of the minorities uh, get into these colleges, blah, blah, blah. And they're saying, well, now I want to hear those white people say, you know, that if a Latino or if an African-American gets into an elite school, it's because of affirmative action. Well, this is their affirmative action. Well, one is affirmative action, which is positive, and yeah. one is bribery, alleged bribery, I guess, and that is a negative. Indeed. Indeed it is. So, um... There you go, Sherry. Go ahead with your earquake. I'm knocking. <laughs> yeah, she's knocking the microphone. All right. Boom. 
Boom. Boom. There you go. So do you have what do my you have turn? for us? Yes. My turn. Well, uh, it's a quick one and an obvious one. Uh, but it's uh, Mr. Manafort goes to the Hooskow parts one and two. We've been through <laughs> part one today. Um, there was ruling from the judge, that the second judge, that he'll serve about six or six and a half years uh, on federal charges. That means he is eligible for a pardon from the President of the United States. The real earthquake is that I'd say seconds after that sentence came down, um, the New York District Attorney filed charges, 16 counts against him, including uh, tax, shall we say, divergences, mortgage <laughs> fraud, golly, and about eight other different different charges. Why is that so important? They were filed in state court, and Manafort becomes the first person close to Donald Trump to be charged. And if, if he is convicted, he will be unable, unless they find some magic wand, <laughs> to plead for or get a pardon from the president. The, the president cannot pardon state offenses. This is a big shift in the focus of what's going on and probably in the vulnerability of the president and the people around him who may well be implicated in the state crimes. That's it. And I on that happy note, <laughs> we end our show. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at TPundets and on Facebook at The Pundets Podcast. If you have questions or comments, email us at ThePundetsShow, double S, ThePundetsShow at gmail.com. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Carlo Lopez, who also composed and recorded the Pundets theme music. Please visit his homepage, TheEchoPartProject.com, for recording and production services. And thank you for allowing us to use your studio. The here, Echo, here. Here, here, you Echo Park Project Studio. 